Hi, I'm super excited to bring you the guest I have on the show today. But just before we start, there's two messages I wanted to share with you. Well, three. First one, send me your PhD grams. You don't know what a PhD gram is? I'm sharing one at the end of the episode sent by Natalia. Two, did you know Papa PhD has a Patreon? Get in there and help me make the show better and more accessible. Patreon.com slash PapaPhD. And third, on the day that I recorded this episode, two things happened. Schools were closed and my kids were home making a bunch of noise. And I used the wrong microphone to record. So please forgive the less than stellar sound on my side. The good news, on Andrew's side, the sound was perfect. Happy listening. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. This week, I have the pleasure of bringing you my conversation with Andrew Churchill. In 2014, Andrew began focusing his work on helping academics present better. He has now run workshops for thousands of grad students, worked with close to 100 professors and over 50 academic-based startups. He employs an organic approach focused on helping people hone their content create a strategic trajectory, design effective visuals, and develop a dynamic presence to identify the most important aspects of their message, figure out how to create a story that will connect with their audience, and deliver it with a credibility-inspiring clarity. Andrew, welcome to Papa PhD. I've admired the podcast from afar for a long time and listened to a lot of episodes, <laughs> so I'm honored to be one. Yeah, and then now now's the time because uh, in this in this season I have really tried to kind of switch gears from just having people share uh, their their academic and professional journey to also bringing people who have other things to share like skills, tips and tricks, different type of advice uh, that that uh, and have conversations that don't focus specifically on the journey but on things that people who are on this journey can use to make it you know a smoother journey. A more uh, a more effective journey and a more productive journey. So it's the moment came and here you are today. Awesome, glad to be here. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, after that, this short introduction, what would you add to give? What one thing would you add to who is Andrew Churchill and what drives him? Well, I'm a dad of an eight, a little eight year old girl that I madly love <laughs> and think the world of. And um, what else would I add? I, I would say that, you know, for me, it, it's interesting in this kind of career trajectory space, right? I wandered for a while. I, I was on a very different, I've been on a couple of very different career paths than where I've ended up now. And um, I didn't necessarily end up here on purpose. Um. But man, am I glad I landed here. I, I just love it. And and I every time I get to work with someone and help them think about how to communicate more effectively, I just I feel like, yeah, you know, that was a good day. That was a <laughs> sure. worth that was a worthwhile day. Yeah. Because I know that the the work that the 20-something, 30-somethings are doing right now in universities, you know, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of um, kind of trashing on universities, I think, right now. Do we really need higher ed? What are they really doing? You know, these people high and mighty on this hill who don't talk to the rest of us, who are disconnected from the world. Um, but the reality is, you know, always a little different than the way people position it, right? There's truth to much of the critique, um, but there's also truth to the idea, I think, that 
the the things that are going to help us recover from the current world in which we live, which depending on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, you may think we're in quite a bit of trouble. Um, a lot of those things are going to come out of academic research. Yeah. <laughs> think, you know, when we, we start dealing with like environmental sustainability and stuff like that stuff doesn't just appear. Um, and, and the traction, you know, what, what I try and do is, is help people get traction for their ideas because without the ability to communicate, without the ability to share, without the ability to um, what I call ignite curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Then nobody listens to your research. Yeah, they, <laughs> you, you sit there and you present or you get in a job interview and you start talking about something that people don't understand and they just glaze over. They might not look at their phone if, in a job interview, but you can you know they're thinking about the next candidate. They're not listening to what you say. Unless you say it in a way that you first make them curious and want to learn more. And then you explain it in a way that they can understand. And and that's really in a nutshell, that's how you, you know, that's all good communication is. Meet people where meet people where they are and and let them lead. That's true, and especially today, you know, with all that's going that's going on uh, with this pandemic that we've been like fighting and dealing with and being <laughs> dominated by for these last two years. There's this question of being able to communicate things that are sometimes hard to accept or hard to understand to a larger public effectively. And not have because one of the dangers, like you said, is if you start using the the wrong terminology, jargon, whatever, you you, you sound academic, people fall just fall back into their their uh, preconception of oh okay they here they're they're gonna put on their lab coat and now trying to school me about this or that, and uh, it's it, it is really really important especially today, and I agree with you that. Today, be it in academia or outside of it, you know, R and D people, companies are doing R and D to deal with environmental problems, etc. Outside academia, that need people with with higher education. So, oh, I'm yeah. fully with you uh, on that one. Um, and most people in higher education, I mean, there's a there's a stark reality. You know, the job market, right? There, there, I don't know, ninety percent of the people in higher ed and like doc and postdocs, they're not going to become tenured professors. <laughs> they're not going to no, stay in academia because there's yeah. not enough academia jobs. I didn't stay in academia. I did, but not as an academic. I'm right. I'm on the edge. Like academia I'm a, I, adjacent. Or <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm academic adjacent. That's a great yeah. phrase for it. Like I, I work at McGill, but not as a, not as a tenured professor researcher. I work at I work at McGill in the skills development department, teaching and learning services. Actually, so while while we're on the subject, we're going to be talking about presentations. I wonder whether because you kind of alluded to the fact that the 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 road to, to where you are today was an unexpected one. Uh, let's say it like that. And I, I I'm really curious to know if you remember conversations or presentations you did that were key to finding this domain that you hadn't even dreamt of at a certain point. How, how did you get to, to this I get position? To where I am. Yeah. I used to, in my, in my former life. So pre PhD, um, I worked in schools for 15 years, but not as a teacher. I worked as an admissions director and, and a PR person. And I spent a lot of time presenting. I was good at it, but I had no idea what I was doing, I was just intuitively, I felt comfortable. I guess I was charismatic. I like high energy, right? High energy gets you a long way. It doesn't, it doesn't sustain you, but it's better than low energy. Um, and then I got into academia and, and I didn't, I decided I didn't want to go back to the private school world, which is where I had been. And I didn't want to go into the tenured professor world because of the 
Yeah, I wanted to stay in Montreal for one, and they're limited as an Anglophone in Montreal. They're limited university jobs. <laughs> um, yeah, you come from the U.S. originally, right? Originally from the U.S., right? Um, and then I, and then I, um, so I started teaching, which I had never done. I've been in schools for 15 years and never taught. And some of my first teaching experiences were terrible. So for for anyone who didn't have a good beginning into your teaching career, um, that's actually normal. That's that's the norm, not the not the exception. And uh, I remember to this day, somebody said, Andrew Churchill, on my teaching evaluation that went to the person who hired me, Andrew Churchill should never teach you at McGill again. I was like, ah. I still remember that. I still remember clicking the mouse click to open that review. And then I um, met with my boss at the time. He said, listen, don't worry about it. I mean, do worry about Get better. But but people don't necessarily start good. And what had happened is um, I had been teaching undergrads. And when I was in admissions, I was either talking up to um, parents, which I wasn't, or down to kids, which I wasn't. So I was 25 and I was either talking to 40-year-olds or 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 14-year-olds. I wasn't presenting to other 25-year-olds. And it's really different when you present horizontally. Mm-hmm. And when I was teaching, it was really a horizontal experience. I was I was just finishing up my PhD and I was teaching graduate students. That's pretty horizontal. The gap's not very big. Um, and I wasn't very good at it. So he said, figure out how to get better at it and I'll keep hiring you as long as like you got it one more shot and I was better. And then in uh, 2014, I was teaching writing at the time for the McGill Writing Center and an opportunity came up that they wanted to teach an academic presentation course. I'm in. This is another one of those moments. I still remember I was sitting at a round table, no windows, inside room in a library, two women who were interviewing me for this job. And I was so scared. I was like, I want this job. I want this job. I want this job. And I knew I'd be good at it. But these two people had to make the decision. And I didn't sleep that night. And the next day I got an email actually did I get an email or a phone call? It's funny. I don't remember being told I had the job. I remember the interview. Um, but anyway, I got the job. This was Friday at like 2 p.m. or something. And they said, you start Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I worked That's all intense. weekend. I built a course. And I've been teaching that class ever since. I teach that class three times a year. I, I actually, this is the first semester I haven't taught the class since then. And it's because it's in person and my daughter wasn't vaccinated yet. And I wasn't willing to go back to teaching in person. Um, so I, so I didn't teach it. This is the first semester I haven't been teaching that class. Cause otherwise it's been, it was online until then, but that was the beginning of it. And then the, the next big one, this is another one of those moments so, so you don't know these moments. You know this, David, because you've tracked people's career trajectories, right? Nobody knows these moments in the moment, but later you remember them. I was at a cocktail party in the same um, windowless room. <laughs> people talking all over this place. And there's this guy that I knew was running teaching and learning services and I knew was an interesting, like I'm like, this guy's interesting. I need to try and get to know that guy. And I walked over and I introduced himself. His name was David Sincox. And I introduced myself and chatted a little bit, probably five minutes with him, a little networking. And six months later, he sent me an email saying, I want to run a presentation um, workshop for summer undergrad students out at McDonald campus. 25 summer undergrad students who are coming into research labs. They need to do a poster presentation at the end. I want you to teach them how to do a better poster presentation at the end of their class for one hour sessions. And that was in 2018. And I did four one hour sessions over the course of June, July, August. 
So I did one every like three weeks. And last week I did like seven one hour sessions oh. in a week. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So literally I went from 25 students and it was slow. 25 students to 50 or 60 students the next year to 200 students the next year to 500 students the next year. And then last year when the pandemic hit, I had 2,000 students the year of the pandemic, the first year. Undergrads. No, almost all grads. 1,500 grad students listening to me talk about how to present better. And were you able to adapt to uh, Zoom, Zoomitude? Zoom's, been, Zoom's actually been great for me because the, the barrier um, for grad students is time and place. And they're not, on a, they're not on a schedule that time and place is easy. And I'm not on a schedule that time and place it, is easy. And place is nearly impossible at McGill for purely logistical reasons. There's not enough classrooms. So we get jammed into these odd spots in weird places that, where we don't really fit and no one knows we're there and people don't really want to go there. And it's like, so, so it's hard to get traction for professional development stuff when it's hard to get to. And now you just turn on the computer and you don't even have to commit to being there for the whole hour because you turn on the computer for 10 minutes. And if you don't like the person, you walk away. You, you're not going to walk out of a room, right? But, but if your camera's not on, sure is easy to walk away from a Zoom feed. Just one of the, one of the challenges of presenting more effectively online is that people can leave. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, if the if the content, it's how can I say? It kind of uh, it's a selection, right? If the content content isn't interesting to them, they're they're actually better not be there and do something more more you know yeah more, a better use of their time for them. Uh, no, I totally understand. Now uh, I think people listening and watching. Uh, have kind of understood that Andrew is good at storytelling because I asked him one question and there were like moments of uh, unknown uh, anxiety, uh, um, you know, uh, a, a moment of happiness and success. And then, you know, people, in characters introduced to the story who you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to definitely talk about that. But uh, the, now just because you talked about helping students you know, at least gain um, confidence that they can present well and give them tools to have this confidence. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious to ask you, um, thinking of someone who's listening and thinks, oh, I'm, I just suck at presenting. I don't have this, the presenting gene. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't put me in front of, a, of a, an audience. I, I'm not going to be able to, uh, to, uh, to perform as well as blah, blah, blah. I imagine that, you have you know such experience i don't know some some of it in person some not but with so many young people who are maybe the ones who might be more self-conscious about <laughs> presenting especially in front of an audience uh it's a learned skill right there's you talked about energy and that's you know something that's personal but there's part of it that's learned learnable right there are very few people who are great presenters that didn't train their ass off to get there. They just, it, it is one of the, it is, it is one of the skills that if you want to get good at, you must learn. It's not a, it's, it's, there's no, it, it's not like an innate. I mean, yeah, some people are like super charismatic. And it's like, there are a few people, but it's like a teeny tiny exception. And, and for the most part, um, those are the people that you actually don't remember what they said. They're so good on stage that that's the person. And you've had this happen, David, right? Somebody, somebody has done a presentation and, um, you know, we'll call them Steven for the sake of whatever. Steve did this presentation and I'm like, Oh, David, let me tell you, you gotta go listen to Steve. He did a great presentation. Say, oh, yeah, yeah, it was funny. He made us laugh. He was engaging. Nobody was looking at their phones. Oh, yeah, what did you learn? <laughs> uh... <laughs> I don't remember. That's not an effective presentation. 
that's actually someone who's who that's a, that's a waste of talent is what that is and a lot of times those are people who who actually were they are charismatic so they've never had to learn and and they never have learned and and people have always said you're great at this and they're not because there's no content there's no substance there it's like clickbait right mm-hmm. like you like everybody's everybody's there but then nothing happens and and it's just a disappointment so so when you start unpacking that you know that becomes the question you the other th- the other myth i think with presenting is you don't actually have to be more than pretty good at it. I mean, if you want to do a TED Talk and you want the TED Talk to go viral, different story. But if you just want to, if you just want to get, like you just want to be pretty good at it so that like you're doing presentations and people don't fall asleep and people pay attention and people remember what you said, you don't have to get to like fantastic. You just have to get to, you know, pretty darn good. And and that's not actually that hard. I always tell the people I'm working with, the, the research you're doing in your lab, way harder than anything I'm going to teach you today. <laughs> like you're 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 brilliant. Your your work is the the other work that you do is harder than than this work um but but you got to work at it. it it's not it's that doesn't mean it's that doesn't mean that it's like easy it just means that most people can do it mm. makes me think of uh, musical instruments and, so, and some people are kind of have a knack for learning musical instruments but Someone who doesn't have the knack but trained for 13 years becomes a, a well-known and successful violinist, let's say, for example. It, it totally makes sense to me. Now, the the thing is, in when you're in academia, you're used to to being highly scrutinized, you know, under to be under the, micro, the microscope lens. And I guess that's probably a reason why people might say, oh, I'm, I'm not good at presenting or I, I'm never going to be good at presenting because the their standards they're they're comparing themselves to are super high and super stringent and what i'm hearing is don't don't put the standards over there it's it's overkill just get pretty good at it and then if you get in a situation where it would benefit you to become really really good at it that's a different i mean don't stop it pretty good if you if you want to keep going but but don't be mediocre. All you're doing is wasting everybody's time. You're, you're wasting your you're wasting um, your brain because you're not able to share what you know, um, and you're wasting your audience's time because you're not effective at at doing it. That's an excellent segue to what I was going to ask you, which is, what's you can answer in two ways. What's the first step to take? let's say to to start learning this craft of presenting or the second way to look at it and you can decide how to answer what are the the most common mistakes people are doing that are putting them in a situation of presenting badly or mediocre in the mediocre way i i would say that the the most common mistake is people are trying to convey way too much information. Whether it's three minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, they're just trying to do way too much. Like give me a draft of a presentation and I can pretty much guarantee you if we delete 70% of it, we'll be getting nearer to where it'll become effective. I see. (laughs) Which doesn't mean you shouldn't write the draft. It just means you have to go through the process of deleting somewhere between 50 and 70% of what you wrote. Um, And then the second piece is 
And and you spoke to this a little earlier when you when you alluded to this kind of imposter syndrome, right? That's always the elephant in the room. I just yeah. address it. Like imposter syndrome, we all have it. I mean, man, did I have it for a while after I got that note that said Andrew should never be allowed to teach. I'm like walking into the front of a classroom the next time going, okay, everybody knows I shouldn't be here because there's a giant sign across my chat. Like I felt like I was wearing one of those like billboards you see on the street during election. Andrew shouldn't be teaching here. And I thought everybody knew. I'm like, oh, took me five years to get over that. Um, and apparently I'm still not because 10 years, 12 years later, I'm still talking about it. Um, but the But this imposter syndrome, what it does is it forces us into being, wanting to sound professional professional and knowledgeable and certain and authoritative and confident and you know where i'm going with this that's boring as hell to listen to mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. called lecturing and no one likes to be lectured to and and the imposter syndrome is what drives people there because you you want to sound like you 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 feel like you don't know what you're talking about so you're like well I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about and then you're stuck in this middle register and that was the gif I did yesterday that middle register and and while we're on the music it was on a musical scale for people who who haven't seen it there's a gif out there on LinkedIn with a music scale you can find it on my profile and the and the music scale is a is a middle bandwidth of confident, knowledgeable, objective, professional, scientific, all these all these things right across the middle. And what we need to do is we need to go up and be passionate and excited, but we also need to go down and and be devastated or frustrated or sad or depressed. Like when I told you that story, like I felt, I clicked that button. And, Andrew should never be allowed to teach at McGill again. Like you hear that in the voice, right? And and actually, my body collapses. This is why it's all related. My body collapses when I say that. Like just, oof. I was listening to the guy who um, is the current Mickey Mouse voice. I just just on the way over here, <laughs> I, was, I had to run out this morning and I like caught a podcast, right, on CBC. The guy who's the Mickey Mouse voice. He said, no, 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 I shouldn't do it. And then he watched a video of Walt Disney doing the Mickey Mouse voice. And I can't do it because it was, a, it was radio. So I don't know what his face looked like, but his whole face changed. When Walt Disney did Mickey Mouse, his whole face changed. And he called his, he had told his agent he wasn't interested. He called his agent back and he said, no, 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 I want to do this. I can do this. Because he said, I don't have a Mickey Mouse voice. And when he realized is your voice actually comes from your body. <laughs> so so this isn't just your voice and, and it all comes naturally. So, so you can do this one of two paths. You can do this by taking acting training, which is a terrible idea. Mm. Don't do that. I mean, go to Hollywood and make lots of money and then fund my work to help researchers. <laughs> um, but, but on a more serious note, it comes from just allowing yourself to feel. So, so I literally, like, when, when I tell that story, I'm re-devastated. Like, I go back and relive that experience when I tell that story. And then you hear it. It's not acting. I I actually transport back to that moment. Yeah, you're replaying that emotional. I, I replay moment. that moment in my head, and I allow myself. So instead of being, you know, how we have these experiences outside ourselves, talking about like we see ourselves. To, that's a really bad way to present and tell stories. You have to go back and be in that moment again. And and research is the most natural storytelling place on planet Earth. 
Because think about the research process. You have a hypothesis. You don't know if it's going to be true, but you think it might. And then you go and you do some methods and you're pretty sure this is going to work and then it doesn't. But then you have another idea and you're like, maybe this one will work. And it kind of does, but it's surprising. And you're wondering, why did that work? Then you have another hypothesis. You figure out why that didn't work. And that one didn't work. And then you go and figure out another one. And this one, that's a research journey. Our research is a story. Like the research process is a story. It's only not a story when it's written in an academic journal article. It's been de-storied. And, and the way we learn, the, the way we're taught to, to communicate research is an academic journal article, which has no story. But, but as, soon as, we, as soon as we say, listen, I just want to tell you about my experience doing this, what might be possible, what I learned, how it went, the whole audience is going to lean in. They want, to, they want to hear about it. We love stories. It's the one thing we like hearing. And it's how we make sense of information. If you give us, if you give us information that's not in story form, we will build a story out of the information or we will forget it. There's no in between. Like if I don't build a story out of what you told me, if you don't give me a story and I don't build my own story, there's no way I'm remembering it. Because then it's just a random fact. It's sitting in my brain somewhere, but I can't access it. I can't find it. Makes me think of, um, you know, these people who are in competitions to remember a series of, I don't know, cards or, or numbers. And they tell stories. They, 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 the story, they, the, the model, they use the inner palace or something model. And it's kind of a story, but it's kind of a, also a 3D space that they've built where they place things in a certain order and then they can go back and, and recollect them. It makes me think of that. But one of the things that, that where the challenge is, is that, you know, PIs, people, uh, um, journals, they want the dry science, no embellishment, no, uh, Ooh, ah, oh, you know, not, not, none of that. None of that. But do you know why? So, so think about, so, so my background was in writing, right? And, and rhetoric. Um, think about how a journal article is used. Forget read. Take reading out of your lexicon. Think about how people process information. Think about people, how people interact with information. When we read, we can go back and reread. We read more than once and we skip around. A presentation is a single track. Very different, right? But, but a journal article, a friend of mine, um, Diane DeChef, she's brilliant. She, she um, equates a journal article with a filing cabinet. So the top drawer is the, is the methods. I mean, the top drawer is the introduction and then the methods. And then you go down another level and, and you get the results. And then you go down another level and you get the discussion. And then you go down another level and you get the, okay, here's what we're going to do next. And there's an abstract that basically is an annotated table of contents you think about it and people go from the abstract anywhere they want there's no trajectory to a journal article because people don't read it in order people read the bits and pieces that they want to read so it's not designed to flow it's designed to be consumable in random bits and pieces it, it makes total sense a journal article is written that way because that's that's what people need. They need to go find the information that they need quickly. They they don't have time to read the whole thing. But it doesn't make any sense to take that model and first of all make it oral, and second of all, like read it to you. Like the traditional academic presentation just follows the order of a journal article. That, that's where I was going to go. Like you take the image. 
you take the figures and then you you kind of follow the script and go and go along kind of recitating whatever was published here's a good hack for where to start think about your journal article read the abstract of your own journal article that you're presenting and think about where people are likely to what people are likely to go read first it's maybe it's it's probably one of the results start there just start there and then rebuild the present then build the presentation backwards and forwards through that point that's all that's all movies do right like you turn on the you turn on a tv show and it shows you this really cool scene and then it ends before you find out the ending and it says three weeks earlier then you go back three weeks and and you want to find out the that's all we're doing we're creating a we're creating a, a narrative trajectory that people will stay with us and be motivated to stay with us okay so what would be rules of thumb for what's what's what stays in bounds of of being you know like a kind of like I was saying impactful clear but still have some storytelling the things I, I do remember it's it's funny because I've seen you know many presentations but I do remember having some where maybe the head of a lab is telling the story and then brings up the characters and say oh this student who now is blah blah or who came from blah blah did this experiment and uh, and that I don't remember the content anymore but I remember being more and more engaged in those types of of presentations than just here I am I'm going to present my data here are the data uh, this was great, and uh, it's published in this huge uh, whatever journal. And uh, I, I wonder whether what could what could be good, um, yeah, good rule of thumb uh, in terms of what you can insert into into this kind of dry script to make it more engaging. Because I imagine there's because there's a there's a time you need to to respect. So there's maybe stuff you need to prune out. But what what I'm hearing is you need if you need to bring some storytelling even into academic and scientific presentation you need to bring some uh for example let's say do i need do i do i introduce like some negative data that i had to then bring out the positive data that comes that came later is that could that be a a way to go that can uh, often work really well don't just share so in the journal article you only get the positive like tell the other stuff too we want good news and bad news. We we don't want just we we don't want to stay in a flat trajectory, right? We we want movement. Um the other thing that I think people get confused about um and I I owe my friend um Devin Marks for for who's who comes from the TED stage um for helping me understand this better. And it's the difference between story insertion and story wrapping. So what what's going on right now, and, and actually we see this a lot on LinkedIn, is story insertion where people are telling a story and it's basically just clickbait. It, it doesn't contain the information that you need to remember. It's not a so so. Um, another shout out, Colin Moby. <laughs> awesome, he's another LinkedIn character. Um, he he picked up on the a cradle. The story. Think about the story as the cradle for your information. So it's not inserting a story in order to get people's attention and then telling them the dry old information. It it's actually letting the information be told in story form. And so it's so it's not story insertion. It's just it's it's like just letting the letting the data tell the story. No, I, I understand I understand I'm trying to find an image myself that kind of represents what I'm what I'm uh, the image that I'm getting but um it's not embellishing per se 
but it's it's kind of zooming out. So I, imagining that uh, because I come from cell biology, <laughs> imagine that the, the the journal article is the like high power microscope imaging that I'm getting, and that's it. It's zooming out and say what's what's around that. What brought you know what brought these cells here? How did they become fluorescent? Who you who who put this reagent here? Da 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 and and. Uh, it's yeah it's 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 oh it's padding back and seeing more it's not adding things in that's how i'm kind of understanding it one of my one of my favorite exercises to do with students is um exercise i simply call so what so you give me your knowledge gap we're academic researchers. Where do we start? Well, our supervisor says we have to identify a knowledge gap to pursue a PhD. So something that we don't know, a knowledge gap. Well, really all that means is nobody in the world thought it was important enough until now to solve. So so it's actually probably not that interesting. <laughs> right? We don't tell grad students that. Your knowledge gap probably isn't interesting. No, so, I, so I just say, take your knowledge gap, write it down, and then say, so what? And then say, so what again? And then say, so what again? Take your hypothesis, do the same thing. Write your hypothesis, so what? If we figured this out, what difference would it make? Why does this matter? So what? Again, 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 again. Take your methodology. Why do I do it this way? Don't talk about your methodology. Don't talk about why, your methodology as what you did. Talk about why you did it that way. That's interesting. That's a story. Your methodology is not a story. It's just a random piece of information. But why you chose to do it, that's interesting. And that's actually going to develop, if you pick the right ones, you're now going to develop credibility and rigor, and people are going to trust you. Because the reason you did it this way was be, to, to make sure that your result was valid. We're not going to talk about, well, I did it this way because it was easy and quick, that's probably not a good one to lean into, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, so, so lean into the ones that, are, that, are, that make it more rigorous, right? So, so methodology, why, so what, so what? Like do this with, with all your stuff and you get all these sheets. I literally have people do this with like four or five, six things. Like you have more than one knowledge gap, do it with each knowledge gap. And that's the process you're talking about right there of panning out. Because this bottom line is stuff that the rest of the world can understand. And then what you can do is you can take that sheet of paper and you can invert it. And you can start at the end. So what, so what, so what, so what? And go backwards into your lab. And then, and then we're motivated. Like we, so, so you start with the, so what, so what, so what, so what are the hypothesis? Bring that all the way to the front. Start there. Drill down to your hypothesis. And, and then the audience is going to lean in and say, okay, what happened? And you're like, well, how did you figure this out? That's, we want our audience to be asking us questions as we present, even if their mouths don't. We want their brains to be asking us questions. Okay, that was cool. Um, so, so I get it. This is important. Can you tell me how you did it? Sure, that's called methodology. Okay, now that I understand how you did it, what happened? Oh, yeah, I can tell you the results. Okay, now that you told me the results, does it matter? What are we going to do next? Oh, yeah, I can tell you what I did next. That's a 10-minute research talk. But now it's a research talk that's not this dry journal information that that makes me think that it's this people, teasing right yeah yeah there's there's teasing, there's teasing and there's um there's emotion there there's uh there's more than just dry dry data uh, that this makes me think that people looking for phds they what they could or should maybe ask this question of their potential pi which is what story are you trying to tell with this project that that would be great and and because if you start trouble a is a project, lot of pis won't know <laughs> well that well, but or or what chapter of you know what chapter of a, a story an ongoing story is this you know and because, where do I fit in the bigger story and where do I fit and and what you know what can I expect to contribute to the story uh, because I think 
you make what and, and impact is one of the the, the, the parts of the, the the title of this conversation, and this makes me think of impact, which is uh, that's can, the bigger story. You can start, yeah. You, you often or you, I started a PhD not really thinking of okay, what impact this is going to have on the field. What story is this telling? A little bit, but not not so much. And had I done it, had I asked these questions, had I asked myself these questions. I might have had have been more articulate about my project during and 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 being been more um uh, uh how can I say inten uh, intentional in deciding where I'm going with it if it's a if it's a story of course in science you want you don't want to stories maybe story is kind of a dirty word wishy-washy yeah word but but it's super super interesting but it's cuz people don't use story the way I'm using story. Mm -hmm. People use, think of story as story insertion. Something invented. They don't think about storying your research. I use story as a verb. I like it. (laughs) Story is a verb, not a noun. To story something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. We're storying the the information because that's the way people process it. I'll tell you, um, as we as we get ready to wrap up here, I'll I'll tell you yeah. something that um, is one of the most gratifying things about my work, and probably one of the most important, and is totally relevant back into kind of the job search world. And that is, um, most PhDs come to no longer like their research by the time they finish because they're just exhausted. Like doing a PhD and actually completing it, by the time you're done, you just like dirty little secret no one talks about, you're going to hate it. It's Frodo, Frodo in the Mountain of Doom. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's the ring, right? Like, just get it. Like, I can't get rid of it, but I need to. It's this weight. It's this, right? The magic's all gone. Mm-hmm. The invisibility cloak is gone. Yeah. And it's just the weight <laughs> of the ring, right? Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting analogy. I love that. Um, but one of the things that I invariably get back from students when I work with them, um, and I have literally dozens of them is emails saying, thank you very much. You made me remember. I love my research. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) And it just, every time I get it, I I get a little tear and I just, I'm like, ah, cool. But you got to remember when you present, you got to find the love for your research again. Because emotions are contagious. And if you don't love it, we're not going to as an audience. So, so you got to go back and you got to remember what it, and that's what that so what exercise does. Why do I love this? Why did I, why did I decide to do this? You're like three, four years ago, you decided to do it. You're still doing it. Um, but you get that magic back and then you can tell the story about your research journey and you can, and you found the magic in it again. You found the love for it again. You found the passion for it again. And when you share that with your audience, magic happens. People fall in love with your research and that's what you want. You want other people to fall in love with it too. And and getting into the job space, right? This is what happens to candidates is they talk about their research and they don't like it anymore. So it gets in and they want to be confident and authoritative. So they get in this middle band, right? We had that middle band earlier. So So in a job interview, you're sitting there in the middle band and the person on the other side of the table's eyes glass over because they don't understand the content. And there's no emotion. So there's no story and they don't understand the content. There's nothing for them. Except to exit the room behind open eyeballs so you don't notice they left. But if you remember why you did it and the ups and downs and you talk about, you know, okay, so I've learned project management. Well, how did I learn project management? Well, because I really effed it up the first time. (laughs) Let me tell you how I did it badly the first time. Let me tell you what I learned from that. Let me tell you what I do differently now. And I'm like, oh man, I want to hire this person because they're never, they like know how to do it well now that they've screwed it up a couple of times. 
But the credibility comes from having screwed it up a couple of times. The credibility comes from you talking about it and the interest in it comes from it being a story and it being real and authentic and human and, and you remembering and caring and all of that. It all comes as a package. Yeah. It's a, uh... Well, one thing I, I, I'm thinking, of, and I'm, I'm really inspired by what, by what you're sharing, uh, I'm thinking that even people who stay in academia, they need to tell a story to get funding for their projects once they, Absolutely. you know. I was working with a group last year that they had all the data. They were reporting back that pilot fund study, $50,000 for a pilot study, a million dollars on the line to, to actually implement it. And, and this was to do interventions. Um, with people with veterans suffering from PTSD. It's an incredible story, right? And they're doing incredible work. But they just came to me with data, 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 We ripped all the data out. We inserted human beings. They told the story about three human beings with character and how they reflected the data. So this is John, who was an alcoholic, who, you know, as you know, 50% of our 50% of the people suffering from PTSD or veterans are also alcohol. I'm making up the numbers. Don't quote me on that. That's not real. But 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 they they insert the data onto people versus not versus the data sitting there. They're they're sitting on a million dollars now. <laughs> three hundred thousand dollars a year in all likelihood for the next three years. So it's not quite a million, but it's like well and, and they're saving lives. So like I can't think of anything better than do to help people like that, right? That's a super good example. And what what it makes me think, and my first thought was, well, you know, students who get to to have you uh, to have you in front of them teaching these things, super lucky. And uh, if you're listening, if you're at McGill, and if you haven't t taken the course, and if you feel not that uh, comfortable presenting, I don't know when your courses start or end, but you know, try to get the course. Take I, the class. I, I, I take the class. I definitely, definitely. Uh... And it's a workshop series. So you can do it as a workshop series. I work with the McGill 3MT. I work with half a dozen different groups around campus, probably a dozen different groups around campus mm -hmm. um, doing different speaking engagements. And if you're not at McGill um, and you want to do this work, hit me up on LinkedIn and we'll figure out a way. Like I'm, I'm now starting to expand this work beyond McGill. Um, And starting to have a footprint out, like the group I was just talking about a minute ago was a group down in the U.S. They don't, you know, nothing to do with McGill. Um, and I'm and I'm starting to think about trying to do open workshops for grad students from anywhere. I haven't done it yet. I should. But it's just the logistics of it are hard. Like it's hard to figure out. Everybody tells me I should build an online course and and do it that do it asynchronously. And I just I'm not a huge fan of the asynchronous space. Mm -hmm. So so I want to do it synchronously, even though I know I should do it asynchronous. I should make it available asynchronously. So I'm in my own little personal struggle of synchronous versus asynchronous and. I know that struggle, but uh, where where I, I really wanted to go is, uh, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit for people watching. Uh, the the URL for uh, Andrew's LinkedIn is is running here at the bottom. Uh, Andrew Churchill, easy to find on LinkedIn. And is there the only place you know? I know you're super active on LinkedIn and reactive, so I, I think it's can, I'm safe saying telling people meet him on LinkedIn. He's there. He's meet me on LinkedIn. I'm there every day. And I and you can DM me. I'm not enough of an influencer on LinkedIn that I get a thousand DMs a day. I, I get like a couple and I answer them. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's also, uh, is there any other place they they can find you? Or, uh, you know, I did, we didn't mention it, but you have uh, Home Communications. So Home Communications is the, um, is the consulting company that the, the component that I work with at hone is present better so there are three aspects of of hone write better apply better because i actually do some some work in this application space i do a lot of work with people doing personal statements because those are stories right i've done a number of um, business school personal med med students like people who people who need to 
tell the story of kind of their journey um, in a competitive application space. I used to run an admissions office, so that's a pretty good fit. Um, but really, the present better space is is the work that I'm leaning the hardest into and enjoy the most right now. And uh, LinkedIn's the best place to find me. And if you're at another university and you want to put together a workshop at your university, I'm all ears. It's it's like we we have the technology to go anywhere instantly, right? So it's super easy to put together traveling workshops for places. Well, uh, Andrew, we're getting to the end of the interview, and I think it was clear it's for good. anyone. We got a whole hour. You said uh, no. <laughs> Usually it's it's less, but you know when it's interesting, you you, you need to. There's some... It's been super fun. I appreciate it. I think it's clear to anyone who watched or listened how passionate Andrew is about this. Uh, also, how knowledgeable, how, how much experience you have. But for me, apart from the experience, it's the love you have for this content, for this uh, this subject. And if if you just check uh, what he posts on LinkedIn, and uh, I think the passion the passion comes through, and it's one of the things that that uh, in, that inspire me in what you do, and that have brought me you know in close contact to you also. I'm super grateful that you that you uh, have uh, given this hour of your time to be with me here behind the, the or in front of the camera, and now also for Papa PhD. Uh, I think people will be inspired, and I, I hope people at least take home the message that you can learn these skills you just need you don't need to be uh i don't know uh, names the one that inspires me now is simon sinek you don't need to be a simon sinek who's on te on tedx you need to be okay you just need to learn some skills and and have and have these good ingredients that you that you mix that you put into the mix that keep things real but that make them interesting and uh And uh, I, I think we could go deeper in I other conversations. Some, I bet you find some old Simon Sinek tape that's not very good. For sure. For sure. Because it's because he didn't use, I can guarantee you, he didn't used to be good at it. Because I can say that about anyone. And it's always true. Yeah. And and you just, you get better at it. Yeah. So, yeah, again, Andrew, thanks so much. This has, this has been pleasure. a real pleasure. Before I finish, One thing that is, uh, it's a new thing on the show. I have asked, and I'm asking listeners of the show, I'm asking them to send a message uh, through my voice, through Papa PhD. And one of the things I suggested, and it's the most popular one as of yet, is to send a, what, what would you like to tell yourself when you were a first year PhD, knowing what you know today? And I have a second one today to share with the audience. So uh, I'm going to, to do that right now. Again, um, it's funny because there's a, an aspect of storytelling in this exercise because people think back on what they lived and they kind of, they kind of, you know, this bringing the knowledge of today to that journey. There's a, a sort of aspect of storytelling too. So I hope you'll find it a little bit interesting, uh, Andrew. But uh, yeah, so it's going to be my second PhD gram on Papa PhD. It's it comes from Natalia who says. If I had given myself as a first-year PhD student uh, some advice, I would say, don't close yourself in a bubble. We like to spend all our time with people similar to us in grad school as we share the same lifestyle, aspirations, and problems. I did that too, and I regretted later on. I overslept technological revolution because of this flocking behavior, and I missed lots of opportunities in life. So look around. There is life beyond grad school. You don't know what the future will bring, so educate yourself by making friends with people different from you. Older people, younger people, people with different hobbies. It will make you more open, wiser, and better prepared for the open job market. Good luck. I love that advice. Isn't it, isn't it good? That's great advice. But again, you can, you can, re, you can kind of retell this, this story or, or kind of, yeah, Kind of rewrite uh, the story it's after. Her story, right? She uh, yeah, after it's something she and and she's vulnerable. She's sharing a regret. She's reflecting on something she would have done differently. So, so it's not just lecturing at us. No, and that's the that's the magic. Don't lecture. Have a conversation. Don't lecture. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. 
Head over to PapaPhD.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Music